I'm Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist. And this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness better. I'm here to help you make sense of the most complex of issues in the simplest of ways. Let me walk you through topics that are important to you, from autism to trauma and from depression to self-harm. In this podcast, I'll bring you expertise, explain the science and equip you with practical tips and knowledge. Join me, Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, for 30 minutes every Wednesday on all listening platforms. Let's talk about ADHD in children under five. Now, this is a very emotive topic because some people think about ADHD in under five as um, overdiagnosed. Why would you diagnose a kid under um, five years old with an illness or why would you label their behavior like that? And some people feel very strongly about it from the opposite direction is that, you know, if it's there, why ignore it? You should intervene very early. So it's a very emotive topic. Let me go through this from both perspective with you today. And let me start with first telling you really quickly, what is ADHD as a basic? Just a reminder. And you can always go back to the ADHD episode and have a listen. And then think with you about what are the common things that lead parents to come in and think about ADHD with us. So once we've gone through some examples, I'll think with you about treatment out there. And that's where the topic gets really emotive. So there's discussion about diets, medication, behavioral management, parent training, all sorts. So let's crack on. The first thing you need to remember about ADHD is that it is a developmental disorder, or at least this is what um, scientists have agreed on in the um, few years of research um, recently. And the agreement is that there is probably um, an area or areas in the brain or a few connections in the brain that are supposed to be our brakes. They're supposed to stop our brains from going overboard, from getting distracted when we want them to pay attention, from um, making us move all over the place when we don't want to, and from making really stupid decisions or acting impulsively. And these areas in the brain are also supposed to help us regulate our emotions and regulate how we manage all of these things. And the theory is that um, a child's brain will develop normally, age appropriately, but these areas will remain underdeveloped. And there are multiple theories about why. Why would these areas remain underdeveloped? Could be genetic, it could be environmental, could be trauma-related. It could be a bunch of different things. And it could be nothing at all. Just happens, genetic, don't know why. But what we know is that there is a high, um, high connection with there's high heritability or it means a high connection with your genetics and if you have someone in your family who's been diagnosed that raises a suspicion obviously and it's also connected to trauma we know that much and we know that it's very tricky in the in the under five um group so children of five years old and under and what makes it tricky is that you're looking at an 
incomplete picture of development. People know generally, because kids are in school, what to expect. Because you have a bunch of, you know, kids sitting in a year two or or grade or second grade setting and listening to a teacher. And you can compare kids to each other. So you have a reference point. That's number one. And number two, grown-ups know how to deal with a kid that sits down, right? But when you're dealing with um, kids who are under five are absolutely nuts. They're absolutely nuts. And that's on a good day. And that's a very well-developed, well-adjusted child who is under five is absolutely nuts, you know? So when do you say that they're inattentive? Well, they're normally inattentive. What I get from parents is that, um, is that my child can sit down and finish a game. I can't get them to sit down with me and finish a game. I can't uh, trust my child to sit nicely and play because they're all over the place. They're going to end up playing with the microwave. They're going to end up pushing their sister into the dryer. They're going to end up doing something really stupid. The other one that I hear is I can't take my child out with me. They're all over the place. They're very naughty. They're always um, doing something ridiculous, hanging off blinds or trying to run into the street or something. And that's number two. And number three is I get interrupted by them all the time. I can't hang out with adults at all because they can't stop interrupting me. They can't stop asking me for things. They can't do independent play at all. They are very demanding. They're very clingy. And and obviously, sometimes parents get complaints from nurseries or from schools or from preschools, because like, you know, here in the UK, by the time you're five, you're probably, you've been in nursery. If you've gone into nursery at the age of two, you've been in nursery for uh, two years. And then you go into something called reception, which is like kindergarten one. Um, And then and that's at the age of four. And then you stay there for one year and then you go into first grade when you're five. There are some countries that accept kids into first grade when they're six. So Generally, by the time you're five, you have experienced a degree of um, the discipline of standardized schooling, where you're expected to sit down in a circle, listen to a teacher, um, follow a certain amount of rules. And you're expected to have experienced a range of settings. You're expected to have experienced friends' houses, family, birthday parties, holidays, various settings. And parents, tend to sometimes generalize. This is the thing. So when you think about these complaints, what I want to hear, what I want to know when I'm investigating this is, okay, is that across settings? So is your child unable to sit still and play across settings? Is that everywhere? So even in nursery, even with their favorite cousin, even with their favorite friend, even when you're having nice, calm, one-to-one time at home where you've put only three or four uh, toys out to play with. So I want to know, is this happening across settings and what kind of settings? So a thing about play to think about is that play is, um, is not standardized. You know, um, I have small kids and I know that there are things that will allow them to engage with me in play. There are times in the day that they might engage with me in play. And there are times where they just 
you know, they just don't want to see me at all like, in their vicinity. And I have no prayer or hope to get them to sit down and play with me. No way. And sometimes I'm just not in the mood and I'm just trying to play with them because I have to, and it shows. So it depends on what, what kind of play are we talking about? So time, timing is really important and the nature of play. There is a trade secret that uh, I have to be careful because I keep giving you guys a lot of the trade secrets. But a trade secret is we have a rule of thumb that generally, and this is no way scientific, but um, a rule of thumb is it's the child's age plus one. So for example, if you're three, you're expected to have four minutes of uninterrupted focus five, yada, yada, until you get to school age and proper school age into grade one or grade two. And then that, that kind of just blows out of, you know, out of the expected proportion and you're expected to sit down and focus for 20 minutes, which is insane and in no way possible, but you know, them are the cards that kids are dealt. But up to that, you know, up to the age of five, generally that's the rule of thumb. You're expected to concentrate or focus for your age plus one. And and the nature of what you're expected to focus on is really important. So for example, playtime, you have to have a clean, understimulated, understimulating environment, right? So a messy house, is not really gonna, going to support you to pay attention. Um, you have to have a limited number of toys. So 40 toys and a massive toy box is no good. That's never going to support attention. This is no way to assess a person's attention, right, at that age. Because that's their world. That's the only way that you can assess their attention, right, is, is by play. I mean, even our tests, even our assessments are all about play. So for example, if I'm assessing your child, I'm not going to haul in a big, massive sack of toys and just dump it in front of them. It's going to be probably three toys, four toys maximum, all in contained containers or trays that are very clear and that are repackable. So once we've finished a game or a toy, we put it away and we start with the new one. So the child has a way to focus has a physical paradigm, a physical template of how I'm supposed to focus. So that's environment, um, way of play. And then number three is the one-to-one -one element, right? Not all kids want to play with a grown-up all the time. So you want to watch your kid play number one by themselves, how they manage three to four contained activities. And then with a peer, somebody they actually like who's nice. You want to see, are they engaged? Are they able to stay engaged with them in the game? Are they able to follow the rules of the game? Are they able to work with them on, on, uh, on reaching an ending to that game or flitting to another activity? What does, does this flitting um, consist of? Is it that we never finish a game? We're just like from one game to another? Or do we finish a game to take it to wherever it needs to go and then we're ready to move on? And are they able to actually sit down and listen and, and, and understand that, you know, you're going to be the, the cops and I'll be the robbers and then we'll go and then, you know, them are the arrows and them are the guns and, you know, this is this is jail. And the, they're able to, to understand the rules as they're laid by two peers. And number three is with an adult. And then adults come in, in, in two sets, familiar and unfamiliar, right? And based on these things, we can assess 
how kids interact socially and manage their attention in activities that are social, right? Um, and how they also manage their attention in activities that are solo. This is very important because even when we're assessing for attention problems, I mean, it can be called an ADHD assessment, but what we're really doing in these cases is we're looking at ADHD, ASD, and learning disabilities. We're looking actually at the range of developmental problems because every other child who presents to my clinic will have the same complaint. I have an attention problem, right? Without context, it means nothing. It's just like I have a cough. You know, you have to try and find out what, why, who, where, when. And it's about that investigative work. So this is what I'm looking at when, I, when we're looking at attention. So my tip to you as a parent is if you're concerned about attention and you want to keep an eye on it, keep an eye on your child's attention across settings and make your environment conducive of attention. And that's the thing that's very important. And that's the thing that's so confusing about children under five is that you're watching development in flux. You're watching development in progress. And oftentimes kids just need to be taught how to learn, how to manage, how to regulate their attention and their activity levels and their impulses. So some kids get it straight away. They can grow up in, you know, Victoria station and it's messy and it's chaotic and they'll be able to focus and read through um, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar in one sitting. And some kids will need a degree of learning and, and somebody to sit them down. And this applies to everything. But attention is so important because without attention, you cannot learn to do anything else. If you cannot regulate your attention, how can you learn to speak? If you cannot regulate your attention, how can you sit down and focus long enough to learn how to manage your impulses? How are you going to sit down and pay attention long enough to manage your activity levels? So attention is where the, the, the bulk of development lies. And, and it has various stages of how it's developed. So it develops from being able to focus on one thing and then being able to focus on one thing while keeping an eye to the background or a focus on one thing and being able to flick in and out to another activity and then being able to hold attention in one, two, in two things, more than one thing at the same time. So it depends on what stage and what age you are. But as a parent, what you need to know is that you have to model and teach and create an environment that is actually conducive of the development of attention. And this brings me to, to, to my famous analogy. And, you know, I laugh about this because it's such a stupid analogy, but I think I, I, for me, it, it sounds, it sounds sensible. You, you be the judge. So Think about learning attention and hyperactivity like walking, like you see a child coming to you at the age of 10 and they're limping and they're possible, they're different scenarios, right? They might have been born with a genetic condition, which means one leg is shorter than the other and they're limping. Genetic can't be helped, needs some kind of surgical intervention, needs a degree of physio. Or they have been neglected. Nobody ever taught them how to walk properly. And they just learned to walk wrong and nobody ever corrected them or gave them the time to learn. Or 
they have been actively abused. So every time they went to learn how to walk, to get off the floor, they were actively hit by a baton and asked to sit down, right? Or they've grown up in a family of limpers. Everybody limps in the family and they just copied the way that they saw people walk around them. So you can't You can't make an assumption. You have to find out how this started in order to treat it appropriately. And it's the same for ADHD. So you see a child who's at the age of five eh, eh, presenting with all of these problems and multiple things could have happened in the first years of life. It could have been a genetic predisposition. They're just a little bit delayed in their development or they have been, you know, um, they haven't been able to pick up these skills and no one really paid attention and sat them down and taught them how to regulate their attention or modeled how to regulate one's attention to them. Or they've been, you know, victims of abuse and they've grown up in an environment that was chaotic and that, you know, did not really support their development. Or, you know, it's just, it's just a combination of everything at the same time, or they grew up with multiple factors, but also the thing with ADHD is that there's a genetic component. So sometimes families have ADHD. This is how the family functions. The family is functional. Everything is going fine, but the whole family watches TV while simultaneously working at the computer, while simultaneously you know, doing homework. It's just how the family functions. And then they go into school and that's weird. So you have to think about what what is your family like? What is your family life like? What is your family history like? What have you endured and lived through and survived as a family? And what is the the, the the what is the genetic element in this? Do you have multiple people who have ADHD in the family or have, you know, cousins who have ADHD? Is there a genetic component? And what is the parenting factor here? Do you need to put extra effort to teach your child how to manage their emotions and their um, attention and their impulse regulation. So when do we diagnose ADHD? Now, there are two camps of people. Generally, we have a threshold for when we diagnose ADHD. It has to be really, really severe at that age. So a lot of the time, what we'll do when we see people who have uh, who are under the age of five, we need to make sure that this is what we're looking at. It is not autism. It is not a learning disability. It's just ADHD. And oftentimes, if it's just ADHD, we'll hold off the diagnosis, and depending on the, on the threshold. If things are really severe, then yes, we'll make the diagnosis. And consequently, sometimes we'll treat. Now, you have to be very careful about this because not many clinicians will will go with this. I told you, scams, emotive. Some people will um, will happily, you know, uh, make the diagnosis depending on the case, and will happily medicate depending on the case as well. Um, but in my career, I don't think it's happened a lot at all. A lot of the time, it's something else that's leading to the presentation, and a lot of the time. We can, I can have this conversation with parents where we say, okay, let's hold off on the diagnosis. Let's just wait. And just, this is a provisional understanding of what's going on. Let's put in all of the help in place because I don't think it's, I think it's too early to intervene with medication. Now let's intervene with other things. So I think it's important to to understand that you, maybe two, three years later, if we haven't caught up, then they would they would meet 
diagnosis of ADHD. So it's important to understand that we, if you if you get your child seen by by a professional, they're seeing them in a snapshot, and often you assess according to the age that the child is presenting um, at. So a child who's presenting with this amount of attention problems at the age of four is acceptable, but if they still have the same problems when they are seven, it's not acceptable. And we use medication. Medication for ADHD is some of the most magical medications out there in terms of efficacy and safety. So, uh, and it's probably helpful to, if you want to know more, to to listen to the episode about ADHD treatment. Um, but we don't play fast and loose with it. And you don't medicate a child, you know, on this, just the suspicion. You have to have a good reason of why you're medicating, what are you targeting. So, so for most kids, for the most um, of this group of kids at the age of under five, um, you're looking at something that can really be managed with other things, other things like parenting techniques. So there are multiple, multiple parenting courses that have been validated for this. It's a triple P, there's the incredible years, there's a bunch of it. And they all, you know, they all essentially are about parenting consciously, being able to coach your children um, in order to develop their attention regulation and their um, impulse regulation. And um, it's, it's, it's also about trying to model. So not just coach, it's also model. So for example, if you're sat down trying to do some reading with your child and you're like on your um, Apple Watch or on your phone and, you know, answering somebody in the end of the corridor, you're not really modeling how a person should sit down and read. So you should... It's very hard. It's really hard. And it requires a lot of policing because already you'll find that your whole life, you're always multitasking. And especially with social media, especially with phones, you know, I remember a time where we didn't have phones and we didn't have mobile phones. And, you know, you just had the space to focus on one thing for four minutes, that was okay. But now I have to police myself, you know, just four minutes, just focus. You can do it, Tigrid. And for four minutes, you need to try and police yourself and really model how you're supposed to sit down and read or how you're supposed to sit down and color, how you're supposed to sit down and play. So sometimes children need modeling. So modeling, coaching, and regulation. That's the most important thing where it's so tricky, so tricky, so tricky. You realize when you have kids that emotional regulation, co-regulation, because this is the age of co-regulation. This is the age, the this age of three to five is when you're trying to co-regulate. What is co-regulation? It's to teach your child how to manage their emotions. And a toy breaking or it's battery running out doesn't mean 15 minutes of, of distress and tantrums. It doesn't have to mean that my whole day is ruined. It doesn't have to mean that everybody's a meanie, everybody's horrible, and I have to break all of my toys. So you teach them how to, you try to teach them how to come down from a, from a level of distress. Yeah, you try to teach them how to contain themselves. And we call it co-regulation because it is co-regulation. We know when you have a kid who's upset, I always hear, oh, let them, I ignore them. I let them have their tantrum and I ignore them. 
you shouldn't be ignoring them. What you should be doing is sitting with them in the emotion, companioning them in the emotion, sitting with them and teaching them that the emotion and the distress will not kill me. And it's okay. It's okay. Yes, I've taken this off view because your screen time is over, for example, but I'm here with you and I'm supporting you through the upset of it. Shall we think about options so we can feel better? Options to cheer us up? Would you like to, to read? Would you like to open the patio door and have a breath of fresh air? Would you like to have a walk around the house and look at all of the different paintings? Would you like to um, play something different? Would you like a snack? Would you like a drink? And you give them a few options. And sometimes, would you like to have some space? And mommy will just be in the kitchen right over there. When you're ready, come join mommy. And it's like, and it's not just, it's very hard because you have to contain your emotions. I mean, watching your child in distress is very distressing. But in that moment, you're trying to, you're trying to, to model what it's like to manage those difficult emotions and you're trying to do it for them. Sometimes hugging is very important. Physical, literal containment, not just containing them using your words, but actually hugging them and containing them. And neurodiverse children, especially those with sensory needs and proprioceptive needs, sometimes really need that hugging, that movement, that physical weighted blanket, you know, bear hug thing to enable them to physically contain themselves. And then there is the actual modeling. Modeling when you're upset, when they're frustrating you, how are you going to model this to them? Because it's very difficult, you know, when, when parents come to me and say, well, you know, my child throws these massive tantrums right in the middle of the supermarket and I can't cope. And then we go through how they manage their distress and it's the exact same. And it's a very vicious circle because kids are annoying and they annoy their parents, and then you feel stuck in that situation. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming into the situation of seeing your child one hour a week or a month or in six months, maybe, and you're living through this day in and day out and it breaks you, it breaks you. And even the most regulated parents break under, under this and struggle to find the energy um, to keep regulating and keep modeling good behavior and keep modeling regulating um, their emotions. So parenting classes and parenting support groups and parenting work is so vital, especially for that group, especially for that group. So, so if you're in that position and you're on the fence around, does my child have ADHD? What is going on here? Go get a parenting class. Find one that suits you. Find a support group that suits you and and find a way to consciously parent this child and get some respite and get breaks and build in time for your well-being because it is hard. And and working on parenting techniques and helping children develop their attention and and, and their um their activity regulation is very hard. And um but it pays off. It takes time and it's hard, but it pays off because even if your child ends up getting a diagnosis of ADHD, they're much better um, placed to get 
better outcomes. Because if you listen to the ADHD episode, I was just saying, you know, that there is a significant portion of these kids who might actually grow completely out of ADHD. And we don't know why, but it looks like those kids that have had a lot of good positive intervention in their environment have a better chance. And it's really important because, you know, medication can only go so far. Medication can only set you up to receive all of that parenting, to receive all of that teaching. But if you don't have that in your environment, the medication is pointless. And yes, it will help you, but to a degree, you know, and it will always, there's a ceiling. And all of these skills are actually really needed, not just to support your development in these areas, but we know that teaching children how to regulate their emotions, regulate their attention, regulate their ability to sit down, regulate their impulses is so important for their mental health. It's so important for their anxiety. It's so important for their sense of safety and their sense of certainty in their surroundings. So. My message to you at the end of this is if you're worried about ADHD in your child who's under five, go away, watch their development, make sure you've watched a couple of videos from the how, how, from how they develop through the years and mark down, if you've not done this with your, um, with your health visitor or with your pediatrician, mark down if you have any concerns about their development over time. Number two, have a look at their ability to play and have a look at their environment. Have a look at how people, you know, people who play with them, play with them. Make sure you've, you give them some time, some allocated time. So like five minutes, 10 minutes every day of special one-to-one time, especially if they have siblings, one-to-one time where they're able, where they're able to access you without the noise alone to do something, play or read or color or talk or mess around, whatever, but time that allows you to assess how they're able to focus with you and allow them to learn from you what it looks like to pay attention, what it looks like to focus. And you also need to think about talking to your healthcare provider as soon as you notice a problem as soon as you notice a problem, because sometimes um, we're able to pick up on things like iron deficiency or vitamin D deficiency or, you know, dehydration, things that are so, you know, you might not pick up on them and they massively affect the way that a child pays attention and the, the way that they regulate. So sometimes small things like that can be picked up as soon as, so as soon as you find there's a problem, Flag it to your pediatrician or flag it to your health visitor and get your child physically checked. Once that's taken care of, have a look with them at the problem uh, that you're worried about, at their attention regulation or whatever, and get them checked, get them checked, get somebody to have a look and tell you what they think about, is, is your child meeting the threshold? Is there another problem in the background? And then think about, okay, what is next? If there is a parent group training or a parent support, parenting support place around you. The internet is riddled with them. Choose something that's, you know, that's sensible, that's evidence-based. There's tons of people that do parenting work. There are evidence-based programs internationally and use your common sense. So nothing weird ever works, right? Parenting children 
is common sense. It just needs support and consciousness. So it ne needs you to be conscientious, needs to be aware, and it needs you to have a degree of support. Somebody tell you, it's okay, it's fine. You know, just dust off, pick yourself up and do it another day. And lastly, what I want you to know is that all of this is constructed. And I had a teacher who always said, it's all made up. Everything is made up. It's all about the person, the labels, everything. It's made up. It's made up. It's, it, we, all, we made it up so that we can have things straight in our head and straight in our bookcase. And we can pick a thing, look at the research, look at the possibilities and the prognosis and tell people about it with a degree of certainty. But people are magical and unique and different and unpredictable. And your child certainly will be. Today, we talked about ADHD in children under five, some of the common complaints and some of the things that we look at when we're assessing children under five. And we looked at some of the treatment things that we think about. I have deliberately not talked about medication today in this group because we don't often tend to prescribe it. But if you're looking at medication treatment for your child and it's been discussed with your prescriber, go back and listen to the ADHD treatment episode and um, reach out on social media if you have any particular question or there's something that you want to have covered. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes. This is Dr. Tagrid, wishing you well.